Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. As Senior Vice President of Film Music, our next guest serves as a music creative executive for Universal Pictures, DreamWorks Animation, and its other affiliate production companies. She's supervised all aspects of music on a variety of successful film titles, soundtracks, and marketing campaigns, including Trolls World Tour, the Pitch Perfect franchise, Jordan Peele's Us, and Girls Trip. A classically trained pianist, violist, and violinist, and native of the San Francisco Bay Area, Angela is a member of both the Recording Academy and APA, Asian Pacific Americans, at NBC Universal, and is an active alum of USC's Thornton School of Music. And the exec is Angela Luce. Hey. Hey, it's a pleasure to see you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, likewise. So I saw that you start playing piano at age two and violin at eight. Yeah. Typical Asian upbringing. <laughs> like, I don't even know if like eight was like late. <laughs> you know what I mean? For violin. <laughs> well, I've, I've heard if you want to get to Juilliard, you have to start at like four or five. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Did you enjoy like either instrument or did that come later or? You know, it's interesting. Um at the end of the day, I feel like I was more proficient at piano, um, but I was better kind of like my natural talent was geared more towards the violin. Um, and I say that because I just happened to have a really good piano teacher, you know, like, and so, I mean, so much so that she was, you know, she was like trying to pull me out of, of, of like school and do homeschooling and all of that. And, um, you know, she was definitely with the technique you know, really on top of me. Whereas with violin, I guess my teachers weren't always the best, but I was able to still kind of like, you know, do well because I just, I guess naturally was better at it. So, you know, I kind of, I mean, I know this is really weird, but I am very 50-50 on it. Um, I think it just depends. But violin is such a hard instrument. You know what I mean? It's so frustrating for me after like all these years to pick up a violin and try to like play at the proficiency that you do when you're like going to college in performance. Um, whereas piano, I feel like you can still, you know, even if you mess up, it still kind of sounds okay. Whereas like a violin, you're like, okay, I can't, I cannot be doing that at the like, level I was. So I really, to answer your question, I think it was like both. I really loved both of them. Yeah. Right. It's so funny to me too, when revisiting violin or like opening a Suzuki book and just realizing my vibrato is so shaky. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think it's like, especially with technique and violin, like I think because I didn't have a good technique, I wonder like how much better I could have been, right? Like if I had the good Mm. technique and, and all of that, but it is so important, especially with the violin and a stringed instrument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you were like considering um, going to, or being homeschooled for the sake of the instrument, and then obviously you studied it in school, like, do you feel like you were kind of like pushed into that? Or is that something that you actively wanted to study? I mean, I think at the age of two, I probably wasn't like, hey, mom, I want to <laughs> play the piano. I'm not sure, you know, but, you know, in the beginning, I was pushed. And I will say throughout, you know, like the how many years I was, I was playing, 
you know, I think every teenager who who has gone down this path, well, not every, but I will say for myself, I, I was at a point where I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. I don't really know. And I really credit my mom for like pushing me to still keep it up because had she not, I probably would have like stopped. Um, and I'm really glad that I didn't. So, you know, it, it kind of like started as a, you know, why don't you do this? And then obviously my love for it, like was really what kind of helped me kind of keep going with it. And, um, even though there was kind of like, you know, I just hated practicing. I don't know about like other, you know, musicians. I think you really have to like be diligent at that. And I was still good enough with my talent to get by without a lot of practicing. And that's when like I was at USC as a performance major in piano. And I just was like, you know, looking around and everybody was day in and day out practicing. And I just didn't like, I just wasn't into it. And I thought it was unfair for me to like, for, for my parents even to be paying that much money and for me to like really be continuing with it if I, I didn't have my heart in that kind of thing. So, yeah. And at that point, like, did you, were you interested in like film music or did that? You know, if you're asking like how it started, I mean, it, it really started. I mean, I, I always just like growing up in the Bay Area, you know, like the, the kind of like exposure to music really was really through like performance and like we had radio, but you know, it's like the music industry in terms of record labels and, and beyond that isn't really that big of a thing. Right. Like, so I, I, when I was in high school, I actually, I'm going to totally date myself, but I was in an AOL chat room and I met a guy in one of the chat rooms and he happened to be an on-air DJ at like one of the radio stations in San Francisco, basically like the kiss FM of like San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so then he like through him, I started interning in radio when I was like 16. And that was the first time I was like, Oh, you can actually do something and work with music because I always knew that I loved music so much. Um, and that was the first time I thought like, Oh, maybe you can actually do something beside to be a musician, you know, for, for a career. And so when I went, when I applied to USC, they had a music business major and I thought, okay, well, I'll do my performance major, but like I could still do music business as a minor. And it was there through the music industry program where, you know, they have you taking classes, everything from like music law to music licensing and copyright to radio promotion to live concerts. And one of the classes that I really loved was music supervision. Mm. And so, you know, my junior year when you had to, when I had to take an internship, I was looking at interns, internships, and it was like random companies and then Miramax films. And this was like, you know, in the late nineties. So obviously at that point, I mean, had it been like Miramax, Warner Brothers Records, Azoff Music Management, I may not be doing what I'm doing right now because, you know, even back then, do you really know like what it entails? And, you know, like, I think like working at a label probably to a 20 year old would have been more glamorous, right? Like, but, but that's, it kind of jumped out at me. And then I started interning there and the rest is history. So I, I really, you know, like I kind of dipped my toe in, like in the class at USC and then actually interning was what made me love doing what I do. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Actually, now that you mentioned it, I feel like I kind of went through a similar thing where I was interning at um, an ad music plays called Mophonics. Oh, yeah. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. That was just because my idol songwriter at the time, Mark Foster from Foster the People was there. And then I was thinking like as a songwriter, wouldn't it be good to like study how to do that so you can make catchy melodies in 30 seconds or less? Right. And then that's what 
led to me loving like writing music to picture. Yeah. 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 It's like, it, and I don't know, I tell this story now, but who knows? I might've been back in the day. I might've just been like stumbled upon it, but I, I like to think that I actually had a process and like, you know, a thought towards the future and my, and my career. But you know, back then it may have been a different story. This is the story I like to like, remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I want to talk a bit about Trolls World Tour because you had a lot of involvement on that. And there's just like an insane amount of talent. Uh, and yeah, just like in terms of wrangling talent, cast and the original songs. I mean, you worked with like the greatest pop songwriters of right now. Yeah. <laughs> what were some of the challenges in terms of uh, coordinating a lot of that? And- wow. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I will say like in my career, this is one of the highlights just in terms of like overseeing and like music supervision and wrangling, not just because of all of the different like people and, you know, songwriters and talent involved and, you know, our music team led by like our executive music producers, Justin Timberlake and Ludwig Gorenson, but from a, just from a project perspective, for DreamWorks and Universal, like a franchise like Trolls was so far reaching. It was super global, not only, and and like for those who haven't seen the movie, it very much centers around music. Like basically Poppy and Branch find out that there's all these other trolls that live in the world and they're all representative of a different genre of music. And so, you know, with music being such at the center of the actual story of the movie, like every, like the, obviously the studio really needed music as an asset. So working with, I mean, I always work with them anyways, but marketing and home entertainment, but even like consumer products and merchandising and, you know, like video games and all of that. So it was such like a really awesome thing to be able to like really work together amidst everyone in the studio to push out the movie and then the soundtrack and working with RCA, like it really, and, and, and like the songs being such a part and a vehicle of like the, the campaign for the movie was so, was so important and really satisfying and rewarding. But in terms of like wrangling everything, I mean, obviously schedule, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, kind of a no brainer. Right. And so I worked with our producer, Gina Shea a lot, because if you think about, you know, it's like, you have like the talent. So we had everyone from like, George Clinton, Ozzy Osbourne, obviously Justin Timberlake, Mary J. Blige, Anderson Pock, Jay Balvin, Red Velvet, you know, just to name like not even a few, but like a, a majority of our talent. You know, I was working so closely with production because like they had to all see, obviously do their voiceover like work. So it was like, you know, really working in tandem with them like making sure we weren't wasting anyone's time and we were trying to piggyback off of all the work that needed to be done. So like obviously schedules and then like thinking about like Justin Timberlake, right? Like, I mean, you know, with him and he is very hands-on and wants to be in the middle of everything. He's not going to put executive music producer like, you know, on his resume and and not, he's not one of those people that's like not going to do anything. He really wanted to be in the middle of all of it. But at the time he was like releasing a book he had like a jeans line. I think he was finishing tour. At one point, he actually like he had lost his voice. And so it really was a lot of it was like trying to figure out how we could do everything, you know, given like Justin's schedule. Um, so there was that part of it. But also just like, you know, we had nine original songs. Um, and working with the filmmakers and Justin and Ludwig to figure out what spot was going to be original song. What was the creative for it? You know, Justin had a really, you know, um, point of view that like, you know, 
it should work for the movie, but he wanted it to be able to like, you know, be heard on the radio as well. That was something as a creative for him that was really important. And with each different song and each different genre, who are we going to pull in between, you know, obviously Justin's like really deep Rolodex and the people that he works with a lot and kind of like the past experience with Max Martin and, you know, writing a hit song in addition to kind of like, you know, at Universal and DreamWorks, like our existing relationship with songwriter Sarah Ahrens. And so kind of bringing her into the mix and her relationship that was already existing with Ludwig and Ludwig and Teddy Shapiro being kind of like a home base, you know what I mean? Like, and everyone probably know, you know, it's like, you know, Ludwig coming up through Teddy and Ludwig being on his own, like a standalone kind of like powerhouse, especially in music production. It's just a lot of it was like, really putting together the right set of people, right? Like Mm -hmm. creatively trolls is a movie that like you're blending so many different genres. You've got country and funk and hip hop and rock and classical. We have yodeling in there. We've got K-pop, we've got, you know, reggaeton. And so having like, like Ludwig, you know what I mean? Be the, the music producer who really was like, at base level, the guy that was creating all the tracks, you know, with in, in tandem with Justin, but like he is an anomaly because he really can get all of those genres really great and down. You know, I, I don't think there's a ton of music producers that can do that because I think, you know, music producers have their niche, right? Like they're really good in rock or they're really good in pop or, you know, like they're really good in reggaeton, but, you know, even like the decision to bring Ludwig into the mix, knowing that he could span all the different genres, I think was really important. And then, sorry, this is a very long-winded answer, but also just like all the different songwriters, you know what I mean, that we brought in. I mean, again, given Justin's schedule and it being animation and us having to have these songs to animate to, like we really had to kind of figure out what was the priorities, what could we do until Justin was ready to kind of like get in a studio and start writing with everybody. And at one point with Justin's blessing, of course, we were like, well, maybe we just reach out to the songwriting community and have a big derby. And like, you know, we did a whole songwriting camp where like we had every big songwriter who could come. This was obviously pre COVID, but like come into a room and like, you know, the filmmakers, Mike Noblock, the head of my department and I, and Ludwig basically showed really big scenes where we needed these original songs. And we showed it to the, like the songwriting community and like people just started writing and demoing in the off chance that Justin didn't have the time. And so, you know, that's where it all started. And then, you know, some of those, you know, unfortunately, like some of the, you know, a lot of those demos didn't end up sticking because Justin did come in and he wanted to bring in certain songwriters. And so the rest is history. So that's, that's just like, a little bit of like, you know, kind of the the challenges that that I encountered, but you know, it ended up working out really great. Everybody, I mean, I think the film is like a testament to music and a love letter to it. And, you know, everybody worked together so well. And it was just like, like a, like a love fest, which, you know, you don't find every day, especially when you're dealing with so many different like personalities and talent and things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think well, for me, I think the Yodo beat and just the amount of K-pop in the movie yeah. was just like so incredible yeah. to see and, yeah. and hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, plus, I mean, yeah, it's very rare to get one Polar Prize winning a uh, Swede songwriter. Exactly. Of, you know, two biggest. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, it was like in the very beginning, we were like, oh, well, we need a rock song. 
And I was talking to Ludwig one day and I was like, I mean, what if you just write with Haim? I mean, like there, you know, we're, we want someone, we want a song to represent a female, badass rock, female queen of rock. Like, why don't you do that? And like, that would be great. And he like literally came back two weeks later and had this amazing rock song that he'd written and recorded with the Heim girls. And that ended up being actually the theme for, for the rock trolls, you know? So we used mm-hmm. that song as like a score kind of like, you know, uh, like underscore and it ended up, you know, being an end title for the film. It, you know, it's just, it, it really, it, it just ended up being really great. It was really awesome. Yeah. This is a, weird question but as a led zeppelin fan did you have any interest in trying to get like a jimmy page on? i mean you know ozzy was already on board yeah. you know like i think had he not been i 100 would have been calling christy soper the head of casting for dreamworks and and gina our producer being like what about jimmy page like i mean absolutely you know i'm sure you know ludwig has the guitar chops and he does a lot of the guitar playing in the movie but i'm sure he would have moved over if we had <laughs> jimmy page um yeah that would be that would be really amazing yeah <laughs> cool i mean it's so amazing to me that you've worked on a lot of like movies that are really, really music heavy from like Pitch Perfect and Straight Out Compton yeah. uh, yesterday as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about like Teddy and Ludwig's relationship and uh, yeah, I mean, they're obviously super close yeah. um, and work in the same studio, yeah. but do you find it's ever an interesting challenge to like pair the right composer for a project where songs and score kind of interlude and really blend seamlessly like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think if it's ever been a challenge. I mean, I think going in when we put together a music team and we're, we're considering who is going to be part of that. I think that obviously would be, would be one of the, the main like considerations, right? Like, um, so I think it depends on what's needed. I mean, I've never really had a challenge with it, but I do think going into a project when you know that like score and song do need to be so seamless like that. I mean, that was a big like reason why we thought that the the combination of Teddy and Ludwig would be so perfect because, you know, obviously not only are they so close, but they literally are in the same, you know, like space, like you said. So it was really great for, I mean, you know, Teddy telling me this, like where like he could literally go into the next room, you know, like, because a lot of like his score for Trolls did incorporate and interpolate the songs that we were putting in the movie. So it's like, just even from a physical standpoint of like, Hey, what are you working on? What are you doing? Like, let's, you know, what, what's in this scene and all of that. It just like, sorry, <laughs> it, it really was so seamless. Um, but no, I mean, I don't think, sorry, how about my dog? Okay. I don't think there's ever been like a challenge, you know, like I think if you do, like I said, if you do know that that's something that has to be really important, then I think, you know, you, you get the right person or people for the job. Like there are certain composers that are really good at like scores even, you know what I mean? Like they, they, if, if there's a lot of like instrumental song sounding, you know, music that needs to play its role as score, then there's obviously those composers that do that too. Or if you have to hire two separate people, like a Ludwig and a Teddy, there's that as a consideration too. So I think, you know, it's all, it's all, it all differs and depends on the project for sure. Gotcha. Cool. Well, uh, next year on my list, I wanted to ask about the, uh, the universal the global talent development inclusion program and the uh specifically the composer side of that yeah uh which just finished its first uh two years and is 
I guess right now you guys are going through applications mm-hmm. for the next Yeah, set. it's really exciting. Yeah. How, I mean, we've had like JB and Steph Economy on the show and it seems like they're obviously both killing it right yeah. now. I was curious to hear from your side, like what are your hopes for people who go into this program and for Universal as a whole, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I mean, to start off with, you know, like a hopes for the studio, right? And all of our partners, like from Focus to Blumhouse to DreamWorks. I think for us, it's, Obviously, like the, the 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 program was started because there is a lack of diversity and voices within the film and TV composing community. And so, you know, to be able to be, you know, introduced to talent that we may not have been introduced to, I think is so has been really, really rewarding. I think it's such a good time right now where studios and filmmakers and showrunners aren't hiring like the same guys over and over and and they do want that you know like new fresh talent um we have you know we've had filmmakers saying like where are the black composers where are the film you know like the female composers and so that's what this this was born out of and you know we really have it has been such a great source of talent in which you know, we've like, for instance, like Amy Doherty, who is another alum of this past two years, we hired her for um, the high note, um, which was a, you know, which was a release. I mean, unfortunately, it was COVID. So, you know, it ended up um, being a, a PVOD release. And then from that, it was such a great experience. And then we hired her on Spirit, which is um, a big animated feature for DreamWorks that's releasing next year. So, you know, it's like just having the access to really amazing new voices is something that's been really, really beneficial and amazing for the studio. And then on the flip side, I mean, you know, for the people that are in it, I think what we try to focus on are people who, you know, like they they just need that extra push, right? Like it's like, I'm sure there's like composers out there who like, are getting jobs and they're continuously, you know, like finding work, but they're not getting the access to like the studio system or to agents that they like, or to even like executives or to filmmakers or to, you know, like showrunners. And so this provides that opportunity, you know, like um, I think with our, with our last class, they were all so advanced in their career, you know what I mean already? So it really was like, you know, for them, it was really important just to be able to talk to executives and like get some insight on, hey, like when when someone says like we've gone in a different direction, what does that really mean? And like, what do I need to do to kind of like get the job the next time? You know, like little insights mm-hmm. like that. Whereas I don't know, there might be someone in the next class that is looking for an agent and just needs that help, you know, or or, or things like that. So a lot of it is really the access and you know, the, um, the knowledge and the experience and, and all of that, that like someone may be wanting, um, that we can provide and, and the, that the, the initiative can provide to people. Right. I mean, I always think it's like, one of the most important things you need as a composer is confidence and just being accepted into a program like that, or, or for, I don't know, for some people, there's other like little validating things yeah. that can help get that. Yeah. And also like having a sounding board, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, mm. you know, everybody, everybody in the, in the last class, like we've always told them, like, you know, if you 
just need some advice. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm working with the showrunner and this is what's happening. You know, like, what would you recommend? Like even things like that, because it's like, you know, like coming from our side of things, like, you know, like, you know, people don't always know like what, what's happening on our side. It's kind of behind like a, behind a veil. Right. So even things like that have been proven really helpful to them from what I hear. So. Hmm. That's great to hear. And it seems like it's a thing that's definitely changing, especially with the new uh, Academy rules too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know, like I said, it's a really amazing time and, and I think um, it only just helps things and hopefully we'll get to a point where it's not like black composer or female composer or Asian composer, but it's just composer, you know, and there is no adjective that needs to be put in front of, in front of that noun. Yeah. That's a funny thing where like, I mean, I can't even give the example of like, I mean, I love like Ludwig's score for Black Panther, for instance, yes. but, or maybe uh, Michael Abels would be a better example yeah. here of doing uh, Get Out mm-hmm. and Us. But then the thing is, he can also do movies that aren't just uh, black movies. Yeah, too. right, right. And I think, you Getting know, outside of that kind of thought. Yeah, right. Like not being pigeonholed is just like, I'm only doing black movies, but I'm doing movies, <laughs> you know, like right. it's a drama, it's a horror film. It's, you know what I mean? Like, um, and, and yeah, Michael is so, um, adept at, at lots of different things. So, which is, which is really amazing, but you know, that's, I mean, Michael is a good example of, you know, Jordan having asked the question, like, where are the black composers? And he like literally went online and found, you know, some like, you know, YouTube videos of Michael and him, you know, conducting, you know, some of the orchestras that he, he leads it, you know, and it's just like, it shouldn't have to be that way, you know, like, um, but, uh, it, you know, it all ended up working out for the best. And like, you know, we just kind of keep on moving forward. And hopefully it's all, you know, kind of on the up and up, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of uh, raising a spotlight for the underrepresented composers or people in music in general, who are five people like you'd love to see on a podcast like this? Oh gosh. You know, I was, yeah. When I, when I saw this question, I'm like, Oh, there's so many for different reasons. Um, you know, I'm really loving Emil Mosseri right now. He just scored Kajillionaire, which is a, a focus film that is releasing, um, and obviously a score for last man in San Francisco. So I'm really intrigued by him. Um, but also, you know, like some of the females right now are really amazing. Like Amanda Jones having been like the first African-American, I don't know if it's like female composer to be nominated for an Emmy, um, an original score, but like, you know, what an amazing accomplishment, you know, and it would be really interesting to like hear kind of her story and how she's feeling, yeah. you know, being a black. I've actually had her on. Oh, you did? Already. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I'll have to check that out then. Um, (laughs) you know, we actually, in my, in my department, I started this thing like during quarantine, uh, a movie of the week club where, you know, cause people were always like in the beginning, especially like, I need something new to watch. And so we started doing just like a kind of like a, a really famous or new movie that had a really amazing soundtrack or score. And so then it turned into let's bring in the composer and do a Q and A. And so it turned into this big thing. And one person that we had on because he had just scored Queen and Slim for us is Blood Orange. And he just, I mean, just just between his musical genius in general, you know, like being a solo artist. Um, and then also just hearing about his process and just how he, you know, um approaches film scoring is just really amazing. So I think he would be great. 
we had Terrence Blanchard on and I think just his story and his energy and just having been part of like the game for so long, but like, you know, one of the few, but so well-known collaboration partnerships between him and Spike, you know, I think his stories just alone are so amazing and, you know, he would be really great. Um, I'm trying to think Robert Lowe, um, mm. the, the composer that is scoring um, the upcoming Candyman. I think he's really, really avant-garde and, and cutting edge and really interesting. If you haven't checked out the trailer for Candyman, where it's kind of like a diorama kind of, because there's a couple of trailers, I would definitely check it out because his music is in that and it is so spooky and awesome. I think another female, like, I don't know, Tamar Kali or, you know, Sherry Chung, you know, I think is really, you know, like I just, it's funny, like for being, for, for music being such a big part of Asian culture growing up, especially, and just kind of it being a thing, there's not a ton, you know, there's not a ton of successful working, you know, kind of like if you were just to say like, who's, who's a uh, successful Asian, you know, composer, I think we need more of them. So I'm like, you know, with her being Asian and a female, I think, you know, Sherry is someone that I think is really interesting and, and, and worth talking to too. So. For sure. Is that five? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> it's an interesting point about the Asian composer thing, though, too, because yeah. I can only think of like three, yeah. including Sherry, like Tan Dunn for, yeah. Yeah, you've got Ryushi, <laughs> Tiger. right? Right, Ryushi Sakamoto. Right. Like, um... And then uh, Dan the Automator. I thought oh, his score for yeah. Booksmart was incredible, yes, but right. he's not like incredibly well-known. Right, or... exactly. And I don't know. I mean, this could be its own podcast, like, you know, um, but I think... You know, I don't know if it's because, uh, you know, like from a from a professional standpoint, you know, when you're when you're taught as a kid, like what you're going to do, a lot of it is like, oh, when you grow up, you're as an Asian, like you're going to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. It's more of like a, you know, that kind of profession as opposed to like creative and the arts. And it's like, is that is that why like there's not a ton of, you know. Composer. Well, I like, wonder because you go to a concert in New York at Carnegie Hall, and like the orchestra is a lot of Asian people. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You you see a lot of like Asian performers in the orchestral world, and yeah, and, and jazz yeah. now too. And I, but not that many composers getting that spotlight. And I think, I think that maybe that's just an access thing where if you don't see anyone doing that, then it's just really hard to break in. Right, for sure. And don't get me wrong. Obviously, there are there are there are great. Asian composers, but I feel like we need more Asian composers that are a household name like Hans Zimmer. You know what I mean? Like we need more of those. So yes. that would be my hope. Yeah, likewise. Uh, and on that note, actually, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about APA because mm-hmm. I really don't know too much about yeah the work over there. Yeah, I mean, it is just it's a you know it's a group within NBC Universal, um, and I started working with them because someone had reached out to me about, they were doing a panel about like Asians in music. Um, And they, you know, like what it is though, is like a larger um, group across the company that really is a resource for like, you know, Asians to be able to network and to be a resource for each other. But also there's, you know, it's like they'll do events when it's like Chinese new year and, um, you know, different panels that feature different Asians within the industry. And so I think, you know, kind of to go back to what you were saying about 
you know, like access and also like seeing people that look like you, you know, doing things that you may want to do. I think um, it just is like a way to kind of connect with, with other APAs within the company. Um, just as like, if, you know, you were to have some kind of like, you know, like in high school, we had like, you know, like the Asian students coalition, it's kind of like, you know, same sort of thing, but like on the, on the kind of professional level and to a larger degree. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we covered everything here. Uh, we'll see if there's anything, uh, upcoming projects you might want to talk about maybe. I mean, well, I am starting to work on Jordan Peele's next film, which I can't really say anything about, but it it's just going to be, you know, obviously like if you've seen us and get out like this, you know, is very similar in that you're going to be really terrified <laughs> for a long time and won't be able to sleep probably, but he's really great in terms of like his use of music and, and really smart about it. Um, I'm doing so much animation, um, a lot of sequels. So another Puss in Boots, which is really exciting. Um, another boss baby, um, which we talked about a little bit earlier, which is really, really great. Um, we are, I'm working on a movie called Spirit, which is basically in the late nineties. I think it was the late nineties. There was a movie called Spirit Cimarron. Um, and then from that movie, um, was born, um, a really successful TV series that is on Netflix that DreamWorks produces. Um, and then from that TV series, this film is, is is what it's based on. So it's really amazing just because it's like very much about female empowerment. And we have Amy Doherty on it, which is really great. We have an amazing female director named Elaine Bogan, um, an amazing producer, female producer, Karen Foster. And so, you know, we're, we're talking to um, a female for the end title. And it's just, I don't know. I think it's just, again, like a really great story and a really great message and, um, especially for, for young girls. So I think that's going to be an exciting one that we're, you know, hopefully releasing next year. Um, there's a movie called talent show, which is in development that I'm working on, um, starring Cynthia Revo, um, and Lena Waithe is attached as well as like, um, she's doing some you know, things to the, to the script. And I think she's also executive producing. Um, but that is based on, I mean, the script might be changing, but that's based on um, a songwriter from Chicago who's played by Cynthia, who um, basically it's kind of like a dangerous minds, if you will, except um, more focused on, on music. Um, so she, she goes and she is like kind of helping underprivileged um, teens at a, at a high school with their talent show. And, and, um, that one's going to be really exciting. Um, I'm trying to think. There's one called the bad guys. I'm very excited about. Oh yeah. I'm not on that one, but that is a really great DreamWorks (laughs) project. Um, it's basically kind of Quentin Tarantino esque, um, musically, um, it's very stylized. It's really awesome. The composer is Daniel Pemberton and he's doing such an amazing mm. job on the score and, and some of the music. Um, and I think I don't want to like butcher the, the plot of it, but it's based on, you know, basically all the kind of stereotypical bad guy animals like a snake, you know, a gorilla, a wolf. And by the way, they're all called like Mr. Wolf, Mr. You know what I mean? Like kind of like reservoir dogs. Um, and they are bad guys, but they are pretending that they are good 
to pull off like the all-time heist because they are still really bad. You know what I mean? At heart. But they're right. telling everyone that they're really good. So anyways, yeah, it's it's from what I've seen, which is not a ton, but from what I've seen, it looks really, really awesome. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Angel, yeah. it was such a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.